are very happy to have uh, Professor David Witherman with us to talk um, about Shabbatite um, Lee. And uh, I won't go into all the details of Shabbatite Lee, even though it's one of my favorite topics, uh, because he has a lecture to give to us. Um, uh, professor Ruderman is uh, presently the Joseph Meyerhoff Professor of Modern Jewish History, um, and uh, he was the uh, formerly um, uh, of the Herbert Katz Center for Advanced Day Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, prior to coming to Pennsylvania, he taught at the University of Maryland and at Yale University probably in other places, but it's not even here. Um, I have uh, listened to you in one podcast so far. I, I didn't see any others. Uh, and I was really happy and very impressed. So I think we're in for a great treat uh, to hear about um, Shabbatite Zvi and the period of Shabbatite Zvi um, in Jewish history. So uh, please... So, uh, I'm not cold, but if I get warm, I'll take my jacket off. Um, thank you so much, Rabbi, uh, and it is really an honor to be in your congregation uh, and be teaching. Uh, as most of you probably know, I've been doing this since the uh, beginning of January, uh, so you're getting me at the my last week. Uh, in Orange County, and it's been quite an experience of meeting Jews uh, all over uh, the county uh, and teaching them. And uh, I must say, I, I walk away with a, a very favorable impression that Jewish learning is still alive uh, and that people care deeply about uh, what we about our past and, and also about our present and future. Um, this particular lecture, and you mind if I move it up? Uh, I'm going to just go like this. I'm going to feel closer to you. Uh, so this particular lecture uh, emerges out of a cluster. What I've done in the 21 lectures that uh, I am giving uh, is to sort of organize it around themes, even though they don't play out in the same place. So it's pretty, uh, uh, except for uh, a few extraordinary people that keep showing up. Uh, uh, they've been disconnected, but, on, but I think through the podcast, uh, if you're also very interested in hearing me on tape, uh, uh, I, I have worked for the, the Great Courses, the teaching company, and I have 48 hours uh, of Rudiman, if you can stand it all. So there are two different courses, uh, and some of that material uh, in, from those courses, which I did about 15, 20 years ago, no, 15 years ago and 12 years ago, um, uh, have been incorporated into what I've been doing for you. But I, we have to grow, so I constantly am changing as, as we go along here. Uh, so this particular lecture was part of a series called, uh, I don't know what I, what I called it in, in the brochure, but it's on the Messianic Impulse in Jewish History. Um, and this is clearly also a course that I teach at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I've been teaching Jewish studies for 45 years, and uh, this has been a staple uh, because of its significance as a theme in Jewish history. Uh, on Friday night, I spoke in University Synagogue, and there I sort of laid out uh, a kind of overview of the whole field, and we already talked a little bit about Shabbat Tzvi, but I left all the good stuff for you. So um, what I'm going to do is um, um, paint the picture, talk about my own revisionism, how I see it, or how recent scholarship has seen it. The great thing about being a Jewish historian is that it is not uh, a science, and that one generation criticizes another and reinterprets it. Uh, and uh, as I said also on Friday night, uh, the one or two of you were, here, were there, um, Judaism is about interpretation, about reinterpretation. We don't discard, we just reinterpret. Uh, and clearly, that is a parallel to what historians do as well. So if I were to give this lecture 30 years ago, I would have taken one historian and talked about him, and that would have been it, and he had the final word. And his name was Gershon Sholom. Uh, 
Uh, he was a great figure of uh, Jewish studies in the 20th century, perhaps the greatest figure. Uh, and he founded a whole uh, department of Jewish thought, which uh, incorporated Kabbalah, the study of Jewish mystical uh, texts, uh, with the study of Jewish philosophy, which in itself was a revolution. Um, uh, in the 19th century, the academic scholars of Judaism called the Mishnah de Judentum would have nothing to do with mystical uh, kinds of things. Uh, but Shalom became a pioneer in this area and raised a whole generation of great scholars uh, at the Hebrew University. It's a place where I did my doctorate uh, and uh, felt very much a part of it. In fact, um, I haven't told this story yet, but uh, I did. Uh, I was with Moshe Idel, who I'm going to mention just very briefly, and walks in, right, walks by. I was a young uh, assistant professor. Uh, Gershon Shalom walks by. You know, it's like you know God. I mean, at the Hebrew University. Um, and um, uh, Idel says, "Come on, I'll introduce you to him." So uh, I shook his hand, uh, and uh, he says, "What's your name?" I said, "David Ruderman." And he says to me in Hebrew, uh, did you know Pinchas uh, Rudiman, who wrote a work on Kabbalah in 1822? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I said, no, and then he just kept walking. And, that was it. Uh, and the second time I met him, uh, and he announced he was giving his last uh, seminar uh, on uh, Kabbalah. Uh, and then he was retired. And I got to sit in. So, you know, I walk into class. This is a dance seminar in the Sefer Hazor. That this is the classic work of 13th century Kabbalah. Uh, and you, it's an Aramaic, and it's very challenging, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I walk in there, there must have been 50, 60 students there, and it was supposed to be a small seminar. So I, I have been in Israel enough to be chutzpedic, so I go to the next door, take a chair, bring it in uh, to the room, put it right next to the desk, desk of, the, uh, of the teacher. I'm, I'm not going to miss this class under any circumstances. Anyway, he walks in, and he was old by now, and he says, um, looks around, he sees, you know, by this time, 60, 70, 80 people. He wasn't ready for this. So, right, I'm sitting right here, I'm, he's right there, and uh, he looks at me, and he says, Mashimcha, what's your name? And I said, David. He says, Zohar? You know, do you know the Zohar? Can you read the Zohar? I said, no, I, but I really came here to learn. He says, let me, Paul. You know, and he kicked me out with 60 other students. <laughs> so those are my very meaningful encounters with Gershon Sholem, those two. Uh, so, uh, but he was still a great man. I don't, I'm sorry I wasted time telling you that story, but uh, you know, I just wanted to get you in the spirit. Um, so Sholem had a narrative. Uh, when he wrote uh, a major work, actually in 1941, called Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism. Uh, he laid out an outline of all of the history of Kabbalah, the history of Jewish mysticism. It was a revolutionary work which had uh, an enormous impact. Uh, see if you can find two seats for my guest. Yeah, okay, uh, right over there, Sybil. Um, uh, he laid out a plan for uh, understanding the Kabbalah from its ancient beginnings until Hasidism uh, in the 18th century. And we have to start with that blueprint. We're going to talk about Shabbat Street. So let me very briefly go through that. So everything now, this is the world of Kabbalah and Shabbat Street according to Gershon Shomo. And then what you're going to do, what you're going to see is I'm going to begin to dethrone the king. I mean, that's pretty hard to do completely. Uh, he wasn't totally wrong even today. But nevertheless, as you're going to see, a whole new generation of scholars have come to challenge the whole idea. And then finally, I'm going to present my own uh, perspective on it. Okay, so three, three parts. So first, Shabtai um, Svi according to Sholem. So Shabtai Svi is part of the developments in the, in the study of the Kabbalah, or Kabbalistic ideas, which begin uh, in the Middle Ages, but reach a crescendo in the 16th century around a Kabbalistic figure named Isaac Luria. Lurianic Kabbalah is an enormous explosion of interest in mystical activity, brought about for Shalom because of the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. And the feeling of trauma, a feeling of despair, 
and the need to rebuild spiritually and physically uh, the fate of the Jewish people as Jews are now forced to leave the greatest stronghold of Jewish life in the Middle Ages and to move eastward to the Ottoman Empire uh, and at the same time German Jews moving eastward into Eastern Europe. So what emerges uh, is a theology of hope Essentially, Luriana Kabbalah, and I'm speaking now about this 16th century phenomenon, Isaac Luria argued that there was a big bang, uh, an explosion, called Shvirat HaKelim, the breaking of the vessels. And these vessels scattered all over the world. This was a kind of uh, a spiritual world that was just shattered. Something went wrong. What he's really explaining is how evil enters into a world of good. I mean, that's basically what we are speaking about here. And basically what happens is that the good sparks of the world fall deeper and deeper and are held by what are called the klipot, the, the outer, uh, uh, the, the pachards, which are holding them in captivity. Evil is holding good in captivity. And there is a need somehow to pick up the pieces, the good pieces, and to restore, re restoration of the good is the ultimate goal of this movement. Of course, you see how it could fit into a kind of messianic view of the world too. The world is in captivity, the world is messed up, and we have to somehow restore the whole world. But the beauty of this system is that through tikkun, which is the key word here, through the restoration, human, through human activity, through our own piety and our own good deeds uh, and our own spiritual endeavors, we can rebuild and repair this world. You see, it even has a kind of modern resonance, etc. So this is the story of Isaac Luria. Now here's what, what Gershon Shalom did. We now move forward a century. And the year is 1665-1666. Alright, stay with me because if this narrative is not known to you, you've got to follow me carefully. 1665-66. A young man had been born about 20 years ago, 20 years before, so in the 1640s in the city of Smyrna, um, Smyrna in Turkey. Uh, he was a very strange boy, did strange things. According to uh, Gershon Sholom, uh, he was a polar kind of, uh, what's the word? Uh, bipolar. Bipolar, yeah. Uh, at times he was really happy, at times he was really sad, uh, and he did some strange and bizarre things. He went down to Egypt, uh, in Egypt, he had all kinds of uh, bad relationships with uh, women, and uh, at one point he married a Torah. I don't know how that relationship went. Um, but uh, there are all kinds of bizarre acts which need to be explained, either as a, as a crazy fellow or, uh, or simply to be explained according to the Kabbalah. He makes his way through Gaza, and there he meets a very important figure in the story named Natan HaAzati, or Nathan of Gaza. Nathan is a kind of uh, political manager, psychologist, uh, spiritual guide, but he sees the remarkable potential of this man, Shabtai Tzvi, uh, and he becomes a very close associate with him. And they ultimately arrive in Jerusalem in 1665-66, where he declares himself the Messiah to save Israel. Well, the story gets bizarre. And by the way, uh, those of you can't miss the parallel between the story of Jesus and Christianity. Not that the, their teachings have anything to do with each other. That I'm not suggesting a parallel. But the parallel of the situation. In that also Jesus was caught by the authorities. Uh, in, and he declared was declared by his disciples as the Messiah. But something was really, oh, so the, 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 and Shabtai Tzvi was also caught by the authorities of the Ottoman Empire, brought to Turkey, and they're told, either put up or shut up, therefore convert to Islam, or do your Messiah thing, and he converts to Islam. So the parallel with Jesus is very interesting here. There's a certain paradox, right? Jesus, as a Jewish Messiah, expired on a cross. Jewish messiahs, according to Jewish messianic tradition, don't expire on a cross. So there was a need on the part of his disciples to explain this paradox, this uh, uh, unbelievably problematic situation where a messiah, instead of saving the world, first dies, 
uh, he is he's killed and then he has to come back. In other words, the second coming and so on. That's Jesus. But we're talking about Shabbat Shvi. Shabbat Shvi, the disciples need now to explain this remarkable paradox of how could the Messiah of Israel become a Muslim? So the story then becomes even more complicated. He lingers in prison until he dies at the end of the 17th century. But his disciples continue to reformulate his teaching. Now, they take the Luriana Kabbalah, this is again all Gershon Shalom, and they reinterpret those concepts I just spoke to you about, about the breaking of the vessels, about the good falling, the evil into captivity, and about the restoration of the sparks, right? Uh, and they argue that what was missing in that ideology was that the Messiah himself had to go down to the evil world to remove the divine sparks and thus bring about redemption. So that's what Shabtai Tzvi is doing. He's converting to Islam, and by converting to Islam, uh, he is minus times the minus equals plus, correct? So he's going down to the evil, doing evil, and ultimately that will bring about the ultimate good. This is the paradox or the holiness of sin. So what we thought before, what was sinful, is now good. Uh, in Hebrew, the expression is called, so if you, you know Hebrew, a commandment which comes out of sin. This, the commandment of the Messiah is to do evil. And evil, from a Jewish point of view, of course, is conversion, leaving the Jewish fold, right? So, you would think the story is over. By this time, by the time he converts, who's going to believe in him? But nevertheless, his disciples have left us a rich testimony and an ideological rethinking of messianic activity. What emerges are two kinds of followers of Shabtai Tzvi, who are going to call Sabbateans. That's the English word, or Shabtaim in Hebrew. Um, the Sabbateans, some of them are moderate. In other words, Shabtai Tzvi's behavior is not an example to us. We will continue to observe the commandments of Judaism and be traditional good Jews, but there is something in our heart, a kind of karabaleh, some kind of, something has happened to us. We are not the same anymore psychologically because now we know that although the Messiah has not revealed himself publicly, eventually he will. So we wait for his, set, his coming, his return to us, and the Messianic era will then become public. We, we live with the secret of Shabtai Tzvi. But if there are moderate Sabbateans, this is again Shalom, we are, they're also radical Sabbateans. The radical Sabbateans are two of two kinds. <coughs> Already in the generation of Shabtai Tzvi, a group of disciples emerged that believed that Shabtai Tzvi was an exemplar to the entire world. And therefore, they converted to Islam. They were called the Donmen. Uh, their head was a man named Rahia. Uh, and they actually believed that they could create a kind of synthesis between Judaism and Islam, but they became Muslim. But of course, the Muslims had nothing to do with them because they were kind of weird Muslims. So they went underground. And they practiced all kinds, and this, this word is a Shalom word, they practiced all forms of antinomianism. You know what that word means? No, I never heard of that word. Nomis is law, right? That's the Latin word for law. So against the law, antinomian, okay? Or another word, they became nihilists. They essentially denied anything about the normative behavior of being a Jew, and, and thus, again, the holiness of sin. What was sinful was good, what was good was sinful. Uh, in other words, reversing the whole order of things. Uh, so we hear about orgies, we hear about breaking the law. They go underground because they are going to have to you know, protect themselves because they are, and become, their criminal behavior could be, of course, uh, subject to uh, the punishment of the Ottoman government. The Donmet lasts right up until the 21st century. There are Turks in, in Turkey today who come from Donmet families. They're not aware of their antinomianism. They don't know anything about Shabtai Tzvi. But nevertheless, they have preserved their own identity as a kind of sectarian group within, uh, within, within the world of Turkish Islam. Uh, moreover, we have a literature of the Donmeh. Much of it was secret because it went underground. 
but uh, there is a young woman in Jerusalem for right now finishing her dissertation um, uh, of, of, on poetry written by Don Man. Uh, in Ladino, which was the language spoken by Ottoman Jews, in uh, Arabic uh, and in Hebrew. Uh, poetry which brings together this kind of syncretistic religious experience of Islam and Judaism. But the story gets even worse. And this is the last stage of, what, of Sholem's interpretation of, uh, of Shabbat Tzvi. At the end of the next century, uh, a young man from Poland named Jacob Frank, goes down to study with the Donman, and then returns to Poland, where he declares himself the Gilgul, the transmigration of Shaktai Tzvi, through a, a woman called the Matronita, in other words, who is a virgin. Now it's getting really bizarre, right? Uh, and it, it sort of reminds you of Christianity now. Notice what happens. Jacob Frank and a thousand of his followers in Poland in the, in the 1760s, now we're talking much later, right? 18th century now, convert to Christianity. All in the name of Shabtai Tzvi. So notice what's happened here. In the name of a messianic ideology, Jews convert to Islam and they convert to Christianity. In other words, the two religions are necessary in order to bring about the messianic coming. Now, when my talk on Friday night, which most of you did not hear, I spoke about Sholem's dialectical understanding of the Messiah. On the one hand, the Messiah comes about in Judaism to restore, to rebuild the temple, to observe the law, to make everything perfect. We live in a pre-Messianic world, we are suffering all kinds of things, but when the Messiah comes, you know, Yavoh HaMashiach, the Messiah will come at now perfection, right? The temple, the law, the traditions. That is what he called the restorative Messiah. But there's also a different kind of Messiah for Sholem. And that is the utopian or the anarchic Messiah. There is a kind of puzzle. What happens, you know, we all are good Jews and we're doing the law and we're doing good behavior because we want the Messiah to come, right? Uh, that's the way Chabad also speaks. Um, Chabad, uh, you know about Chabad uh, in, in Orange County. They also speak about Mashiach coming and so on. So we do mitzvot, we do Shabbos, we do all these wonderful things in order to bring about the Messiah. But when the Messiah comes, God forbid do we need rabbis. Yeah, you know, do we, do we need uh, law? Do we need normative behavior? When the Messiah comes, everything will be perfect, so we don't need to do all this Jewish stuff anymore, right? And rabbis are going to lose their job. You know, for a rabbi, I said this on Friday night as well, uh, uh, their Messiah is, is described, and we actually studied the Mishneh Torah of Maimonides. That's the rabbi's paradise, the rabbi's Messiah. When on every Shabbos, it's like Yom Kippur, you know, in terms of everybody coming to shul, everybody listening to the rabbi and so on. That's their Messiah. But isn't it possible to think of a Messiah who will essentially abolish all the law? What if there's a conflict between the authority of the, of the Messiah and the rabbi? In other words, we have a very strange category within Jewish law called Hilchet the Mashiach, the law of the Messiah. What's that? Is that the difference from the Jewish law? I mean, so in other words, there's a certain ambiguity, a certain puzzlement about when the Messiah comes, what's supposed to happen. If you read the law according to Maimonides, the great law code of the 12th century, he says, don't think anything has changed except except for uh, uh, the subjugation of the nations. Everything is the same and the law remains the same. That's the rabbi of Maimonides speaking, right? But is it so? In other words, the reason he emphasizes, and he says, He says, you shall abolish, you shall kill all, all those people, destroy those people that predict the Messiah because you, you, you go crazy. This frenzy about Messiah is not a good thing. Let's control it. Let's keep it down. All right? And at various periods of Jewish history, of course, we've had frenzies like this, including most recently the frenzy over whether the last... Uh, Chabad, yeah, Schneerson was, was the Messiah or not, but that's another story. Okay. So, um, Jacob Frank. So, so, in other words, my point, so Shalom made the point, and here he was thinking about Shabtai Tzvi, that, you know, Shabtai Tzvi and his followers come along, and now they're saying, break the law! 
don't observe the rabbis, throw out the rabbis. And now the embodiment of this is this guy, Jacob Frank. In the 1760s, he takes a thousand of his followers and converts to Christianity. And he writes a work, and I gave out, do they all have this yet? Or? Yeah. Yeah. All right, you're going to have to read most of this on your own. This is your homework. Uh, but just take a look very briefly at page um, 188. Good. Uh, we have hardly any words of Shabtai Tzvi in his own right. He said peculiar things. There have been people who now have tried to isolate the few words he said. Most of what we know about Shabtai Tzvi and his teaching come from two uh, of his disciples. One was Nathan of Gaza, who wrote considerably on Shabtai Tzvi and interpreted his behavior. And the other one, which, is the, which gives me a chance to bring up another mention of our story, a man named Abraham Cardozo. Cardozo was a Murano. He came from Spain and Portugal. He had lived as a Christian and returned to Judaism. One of the most interesting facets of this story, to show you how much Mishigas is going on here, Mishigas's uh, craziness, uh, is that at this same period of time, uh, this is from a previous lecture, uh, which you probably were at, that um, um, the people who left the Iberian Peninsula in the end of the 16th, 17th century and returned to Judaism to create places like Amsterdam and Hamburg and so on, conversos, were found attractive the ideology of the Sabbateans. And they were Sabbatean cells in Amsterdam, in uh, Hamburg, these were major centers for the Muranos. And, believe it or not, in Smyrna, the birthplace of Shabtai Tzvi. So, a number of historians, including Sholem himself, have tried to connect uh, the Sabbateans. And they're living in two worlds. Remember, they were Christian and Jewish. So somehow, they absorbed this theology and, and made it part of their own. So those who have articulated Shabtai Tzvi's behavior are primarily these two disciples, and then a whole bunch of others that I could mention. But Shabtai Tzvi was a kind of, according to Sholem, he was a manic depressive. Uh, and according to Moshe Idel, uh, he, he suffered from uh, the illness, uh, where is, what, what, translate the word Shabtai, Shabtai. Saturn, right? The, the, the planet, Saturn. He suffered from the Saturnal disease called melancholia in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. According to melancholia is the disease of writers, and, and we have a whole long literature on the notion of melancholia. Uh, whether he had melancholia or he was a manic depressive, he wasn't a, a writer. <laughs> he was interpreted. His bizarre behavior was interpreted by his disciples. There, there was a very small amount of writing of his, but he did not articulate a message. These guys did, using the Lurianic Kabbalah to explain that he was part of the Messianic process that I've explained. Again, this is all Shobam. Uh, so we finally end up with Jacob Frank. Uh, we now have a brilliant book. Is, is that a message that was articulated by them, articulated after his conversion, or before? And, and after. What was the message before the conversion that caused so uh, many people to follow him? What did he say? What was this ideology? Um, beyond the fact that he was the Messiah of Israel and he looked the part, in other words, he just was a very bizarre, charismatic person, apparently. Um, it is really hard to say more than that. Um, and, uh, was he openly practicing as a Jew? He was making, he was already amending certain Jewish practices. So as the Messiah does, in other words, he hadn't broken completely. He broke completely when he converted. And at that point, these guys step in to then create an ideology of a Messiah who converts. In other words, and that, again, is very parallel to the story of Jesus, right? What did Jesus write? In other words, the New Testament is written by his disciples, right? They are the ones that interpret him as God, Messiah, and so on, Son of Man, all of that, etc., etc. But didn't they apparently witness him performing miracles and things like that? 
Did anybody witness? Yeah, no, they're a whole listing. I mean, if you read the, the major work now, if you want to try, I bet you'll try. Uh, Gershon Sholom, there's a new edition that has just come out of the old Gershon Sholom Shabtai Tzvi. In the original version, it was about 1,300 pages, and it only covered the lifetime of Shabtai Tzvi. We have a new version uh, with a wonderful new introduction by my student Yaakov Dweck, who teaches at uh, Princeton University. Just came out of uh, Princeton University Press, just put out the new edition of Gershon Sholom's work, which was originally published in 1973. And that is the classic work. And there, all of the details of his life uh, and his breaking the commandments, etc., are described in great detail. But let me move on because I'm going to run out of time. Uh, I don't even know when I started, when I'm supposed to finish. What do you think? Frank, uh, the reading from Frank. All right, yeah, reading from Frank. Okay, so look, thank you. Uh, but but uh, 15, 20 more minutes, how long? Yeah, yeah. All right, okay, you tell me when to start. Um, okay, um, on page 189, I just want to show you what antinomianism is. I hope you're going to remember that word now, antinomianism. Uh, honor your master how? In this manner, by releasing oneself from all laws and beliefs to follow after me step by step. This sounds very totalitarian, very fascist. Speech is not the essential thing but action. For many years already our fathers and the fathers of our fathers spoke. What he's quoting is uh, that's from the Hebrew. Yet what good did their words do and what did they achieve? But here is a silent burden. Here one must be silent and carry the crucial matter, and this is the task. For this helper is necessary for everyone who will help, some with a whole hand and some with only a finger, everything according to our ability. I say to you, when the spilling of blood will begin, if God forbid, one of you will have in your heart a blemish of Torah, even as much as a hand's breadth, this man will be with all the members of his household, and even with his neighbor will be totally destroyed. For this place comes towards where we are going, cannot tolerate any law, for all the latter comes from the sitra achra, from the devil, and we are going to life. So, I mean, you read the rest yourself, but that's pretty, pretty strong, right? That's really strong stuff. Uh, I love to teach this. Most of my students at Penn are, uh, are Orthodox Jewish kids. They don't study this in their uh, yeshivas, and I sort of present this to them, not gleefully, God forbid, but, uh, but uh, it is a different side of Jewish history. All right, so now let me, so this is the extreme radical. Uh, eventually, Jacob Frank is, is hounded by the Inquisition himself, uh, and he uh, goes underground. But the Frankists continue into the 19th century. Some of them become even revolutionaries in the Polish Revolution of the 19th century. In other words, this whole Frankish mentality is really quite fascinating. So the Frankists also last for a long time. So what we've created here is a kind of heresy within Judaism, a heterodoxy. Number one, the Donnet. Number two, uh, uh, the Frankists. And for Sholem, therefore, this break was the beginning of modern Jewish history. In other words, not from the emancipation or from the enlightenment or from the outside, but through the Kabbalah or through this messianic ideology, the restorative Messiah had been replaced by the radical Messiah, by the anarchic Messiah. And ultimately what happens then uh, is explosion. And out of this also came a group of rabbis who saw the need to somehow hold the barriers and they became heresy hunters. Uh, and they went out in the 18th century to fight uh, Hajiz, uh, Sasportis, uh, Yaakov Emden. These were the great rabbis of the 18th century. All of them arguing that this Sabbatian heresy was killing Judaism and we need to uproot it, we need to get it out. It is undermining rabbinic authority and the norms of Judaism. Now, that's all shown. Now, I needed more time, but I only finished part one. So I'm going to do part two and part three much more quickly. Um, since Shalom has died in the 1970s, uh, a whole group of young scholars of the Kabbalah have challenged, now the young scholars are older, uh, but challenged the very foundations of Shalom's analysis. I won't go into great detail. I, I can mention a number of their names. Uh, years ago, uh, the rabbi mentioned to me, uh, Rachel Elior was here as a, as a teacher. She actually was, took the position initially, I think she's evolved, but she took the position initially of defending Shalom uh, against his attackers. Uh, and many of her articles went in that direction. But I, I'm, I'm sure she's evolved over the years like we all have. Uh, in any case, uh, the great 
a person who challenged Idel, well actually were two of his students, one Yehuda Lipis and the second uh, Moshe Idel. These were professors at the Hebrew University. Both are now retired, so you see uh, things have settled down. Um, this was a, a remarkable thing about Israel is that uh, Israelis take scholarship so seriously. So this, I remember uh, uh, Kol Ha'ir, the uh, Jerusalem newspaper, and on one side uh, there was a picture of Shalom, the other side was Idel, and under it said uh, Chalutz, uh, speaking of Shalom, you know, the Chalutz, the, uh, the pioneer, the founder, uh, and uh, under Idel's picture, Hamoreit. Uh, the rebeller, the one who rebelled against uh, against Sheldon. Uh, Idel challenged the very connection between 1492 and Lurian Kabbalah. Uh, he questioned the dissemination of, uh, of Lurian and Kabbalah. He questioned whether Lurian and Kabbalah was at all messianic. And he, and he, he, he challenged the notion that ideas really played such a major role in the explosion of the messianic movement of Shabbat Tzvi. Uh, so he tried to dislodge the relationship between Lurian and Kabbalah and so on. The final stage of Shalom's analysis led to Hasidism. Hasidism was a kind of tamer. It neutralized the Messianic idea according to Shalom and therefore quieted down the Sabbateans who were making so much trouble. That position has also been challenged by scholars on Hasidism. I gave another lecture on the Baal Shem Tov, uh, so I, I raised all of that as well. Um, but I, of course, you didn't hear it, so it's irrelevant. Uh, but in any case, uh, so what we have here uh, is the beginning of a challenge. Uh, Liebes and Edel argued that this kind of political dimension, the issue of authority, was less important for a kind of spiritual break. Uh, actually, Liebes wrote an article about what Shabbat Shalom thought of himself. In other words, he attempts to reconstruct the remnants of writings that exist uh, about Shabbat Shalom. But two of them challenged him on all fronts, uh, and that's all I'm going to say about it right now. So th the question is really up in the air whether this analysis, which is a brilliant story, isn't it? I mean, you can make a movie out of it, it's, it's really very, very powerful, whether it really works uh, totally the way Shalom described it. But here I want to now add, finally, my third part. See, I always skip the, you know, I did two parts, the second part so fast. Now we're on the third part. So here I want to add a part which I think brings our story uh, to a different direction and also perhaps more relevant to us as American Jews living uh, in the 21st century. By the 18th century, now I'm moving us into the 18th century, right? Shabbat uh, had long died. Um, and ironically and paradoxically, a whole series of internal debates break out among European Jews long after the Messiah. But they claim that the culprits, you know, the people who are attacking other Jews, are Sabbateans, followers of Shabbat Tzvi. I want to mention three major debates of the 18th century. And I want to look very, very briefly at them and analyze them. The first, uh, a man named Nehemiah Chayon in 1703. Uh, in Amsterdam, published a book called Oz Le Elohim, uh, Strength to God, in which he argued through the Kabbalah that I can understand God, just read my book. I mean, that's pretty, you know, I'm, we have a lot of people write books like that, I guess, today. You want to know God, just read my book. My, God is, is a triune God. That's where he got into trouble. Triune, that is three personalities, right? Not one, but three, right? Sound Christian-like? But nevertheless, he tried to prove that the ten spherot of the Kabbalah, the three top ones, were all connected with each other, and therefore that is the, the way we understand what God is. The book was excoriated. The author was excoriated. How a horrible thing, publishing a book, the name of God, what chutzpah, you know, the secrets of God, and talking about three gods in one, it sounds so Christian-like, etc., etc., this is terrible. Um, for the first time in 1703, a group of rabbis all over Europe, hundreds of them signed a petition to excommunicate him and his book. In other words, their reaction was even greater than when Shabbat Tzvi was alive. All right? So that's the first uh, debate. The second debate is also remarkable. Um, 
I spend a lot of time these days in Europe, and one of my favorite cities I've mentioned in some past lecture, I don't remember, it's all a blur, but I, I go to Hamburg a lot. Hamburg is a very important place for a variety of reasons, including uh, the fact that it was the birthplace of Reformed Judaism, the Hamburg Temple. I was speaking to the rabbi yesterday, where the synagogue was in Malot, uh, and they're planning a trip to Germany, uh, and I was telling him he has to be in Hamburg because it's the 200th anniversary of the first Reformed Temple. But it's also a place where the conversos came. As they came, the, the Moranos, they came from uh, the Iberian Peninsula to Amsterdam and to Hamburg. Um, there was also a big Ashkenazi Jewish community, and there were two of the most important rabbis of the 18th century living in Hamburg. One was named Yonatan Ibeshitz, and the other was Yaakov Emden. And they hated each other's guts. Uh, and most remarkable thing, and they fought each other, and they excommunicated each other. And Emden, who was this witch hunter running after every Sabbatean he could find, I mean, he was a total Meshuggah, but he also had a printing press in his house, uh, and he published every polemic that he wrote right in his basement, and then he went and sent it out to the world. I mean, he had under, he commanded the power of print, you know, by, by using it and so on. Remarkable genius, but also totally deranged. Um, and uh, so Emden and Ibishitz fought each other, and he accused Ibishitz of being a Sabbatean, because he had an amulet with a cross on it. Um, and indeed, we know, and, and historians have been arguing for a hundred years, was Ibishitz a good Jew or a bad Jew? Ibishitz wrote rabbinic commentaries. It wasn't like he, he was a, you know, a, a, an apostate or anything. But yet, there was a Christian dimension to this. He had, and his son became a convert. Uh, so it, ultimately, it seems Emden wasn't so deranged after all. But the most remarkable thing I can tell you, I, I love to spend a lot of time in Jewish cemeteries. So there's an incredible cemetery in Hamburg. I think I mentioned this in one other lecture, I don't recall. And it's right, it's, it's really quite amazing to get there. You have to go through the Reeperbahn, which is the sex zone of Hamburg. You know, the Germans overdo it with that. Uh, and... Uh, but you know, so sex and death all together. So you walk through this thing and you come to this enormous cemetery and half of it in Moranos, where I'm, you know, I, I've studied some of the Moranos who were buried there. The other half are the Ashkenazi. You walk to a grave and believe it or not, there's a grave in the middle. Over here is Emden, over here is Ibishis and they're talking to each other. I, it's un unbelievable, they fought each other to the end, but they, the irony is that they're buried almost next to each other. Uh, and just to see the two graves, it was, it was just wild. In any case, Emden and Ibishitz fought each other, and Ibishitz was accused of being a follower of Christianity, um, and they excommunicated each other, and that's the second debate. Third debate, I'm trying to do this really quick. Middle of the 18th century, a very famous figure who was both a playwright, and for some, the beginning of modern Hebrew literature, and also a Kabbalist by the name of Ramchal. Rabbi Moses Chaim Lutzatam, an Italian. And he lived in the city of Padua, and there he brought together a circle of his disciples, and they studied Kabbalah all night, and he declared himself to be a prophet, and understanding the will of God, and he would have a kind of seance. In other words, this guy was a very, very strange guy. Ramchal had an enormous impact upon the history of modern Kabbalah. He was also a student of Luriana Kabbalah, uh, you can get Kolkit uh, Veha Ramchal in the Me'asharim today. All of the writings of the Ramchal are easily purchasable, and everybody reads the Ramchal, a very important figure. But at that time, he was accused of heresy. What do you mean, prophet speaking to God? You know, those people are really strange. Let's be very careful here. Uh, he was accused of the presumption that he could understand God better than the rabbis. And the rabbis also argued against him. Now, in, in each case, the three cases, the Chayon case, the Emden Abishitz case, and the case of, uh, of the Ramchal, all three were accused of being Sabbateans. What does this story have to do with Shabtai Tzvi, though? It seems it's more about heresy versus orthodoxy. It's about, uh, or heterodoxy versus orthodoxy. It's about those who are mingling Judaism and Christianity together or reinterpreting Judaism in such a way that it becomes dangerous. I would use the word uh, to describe these in the 18th century term enthusiasm. An enthusiast is a person who knows the truth through his own autonomy, through his own understanding of the world. 
He doesn't care about the norms or what other people say. He simply, through his own revelation from God, he enthusiasts, of course, to organize religions, whether they be Christianity, Judaism, or Islam, are dangerous, right? Because they very challenge the very authority. They are charismatic. They, are, they act in very strange ways. I would argue that what is going on in the 18th century, Sabbateanism, becomes a code word for enthusiasm. The issue is deviation from Jewish law. It's no longer about messianic activity necessarily. And here is the final, final piece. Um, 1666 was Shabbat Tzvi, and I hope you can remember that date. 1670, something else happens of great significance for Jewish history. Anybody have any idea? Yeah, I've got some really the Hasidim here. Uh, yeah, uh, Spinoza publishes his theological political treatise in Amsterdam. Remember, Spinoza is the one that breaks from Judaism, who argues for the separation of church and state, who believes in a pantheistic God and not in the God of Israel, who argues that the Bible was written by human beings, who challenges the very nature of Judaism based upon reason. Now, what do Shabbat Tzvi and Spinoza have in common? I would argue they were both enthusiasts. They both challenged on the basis of their own human autonomy, on the basis of their own human choice, the status quo. This is a very proud... Now, so on one trajectory is the story of Shabbat Tzvi and the influence of what becomes Sabbateanism in the 18th century. The other is what happens with Spinoza and how this affects all of Western thought. Spinoza, of course, and Jewish thought connect in such a, in a remarkable way. Spinoza challenges the very foundations of, of Christianity, right? Of, of all religion, uh, in the name of reason. So one is a rationalist, one is not a rationalist. Of course, that, that's the enormous difference. But notice that both of them pose a challenge to the status quo. So what emerges in the 18th century among Jews and Christians are organizations of anti-enthusiasm, trying to uh, remove these prophets, these charismatic figures, and to somehow to preserve the integrity of organized religion, and in the case of Judaism, the rabbinate. What ultimately becomes the story of the Messiah is the story then of authority, right? Of can the rabbis have a place or find a place uh, with their laws and rules and rituals within modern Jewish life, both from the mystical messianic and the rational emerge two challenges to the very foundation of traditional Judaism. All before or unconnected directly to the emancipation and to the enlightenment, which is usually the time when most people think modern Judaism emerges. For Sholem, of course, Sabbatianism therefore became the centerpiece of his own understanding of Kabbalah. Some say uh, he sort of shared uh, a understanding. In other words, he was not an Orthodox Jew, he was not a traditional Jew, uh, and perhaps he understood or appreciated, uh, as he put it once in his writings, Kabbalah ventilates the stuffy breeze of rabbinic Judaism. That's a real strong line. Uh, so, uh, so Kabbalist for him, he liked all of these antinomian types and so on. On the other hand, as I mentioned on Friday night, uh, in his last interview in the review of books that David Beale, professor at uh, Davis, uh, interviewed him, uh, he compared uh, the settlers on the West Bank, uh, Gush Emunim in particular, to the Sabbateans of our day. So uh, he clearly was uh, uh, in, in a different political camp uh, than, uh, than uh, uh, many of the others who were indeed uh, charged up with their own messianic uh, activity. I'm going to talk about uh, the final stage of messianism. Uh, I think I'm going to, where am I going for that? Batya. So if you, anyone wants to follow me all the way there, I mean, you're crazy, but you can. Uh, but in any case, um, uh, that is a story for further reflection. In any case, what I tried to show you is not only a, a good story, uh, but the ramifications of a remarkable figure and his movement in Jewish history uh, and the challenge that we still face. In other words, how do we preserve our own human autonomy, our own human expression, our own ability to, to think and to feel and to do things and at the same time live within a collective tradition that makes demands upon us? In other words, that's the bigger question, whether the Messiah will come tomorrow or not, 
uh, we can sort of defer that question. Um, but nevertheless, uh, that's what the story of Shabtai Tzvi and the aftermath of Shabtai Tzvi bring us. So I hope uh, I kept you awake and uh, uh, I'm finished. Thank you. Sure. Okay, Mike. You, you raise this issue. Can you just ask one question from the family? For her family? No, no, no. no, 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 no it's okay. Yeah, okay. No, yeah. We're not married. Oh, you're not even married? Oh, good. All right. Okay, excuse me. I'm frying too much anyway. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, all right. So we're actually going down into sin to the third world. Okay, you do it. Good. But okay. This whole notion of. Going into the dark as a way to you know, re redeem the uh, the good, the light. You trace it, you know, Shabbatai Zvi. You find it in uh, Kabbalah, uh, and then you trace it maybe even to uh, Jesus, where Jesus goes into hell to to, to redeem and, and has this uh, his nail on the cross. But isn't this really even? traceable back to normative Judaism. Isn't the whole tradition of Judaism, the, the tradition of exile, to be a light unto nations, to be cast out from the promised land into exile, to be dispersed, and to bring the message of monotheism. Isn't this really the original going into the darkness to redeem, upon which all this else is good. Right? That sounds so authentic. I like that. I mean, you ever thought of being a rabbi? Uh, yeah, that's good. Actually, uh, Lorena Kabbalah interpreted the notion of tikkun on three different levels. There is the exile. Uh, first of all, the whole world is out of kilter. And it's kind of the, the cosmology has to be corrected. It's all messed up. It's all messed up. The universe is all messed up. But it's also the story of each individual soul who is in exile. And then finally, the nation is in exile. So it, they reinterpreted exile in terms of its Lurianic concepts. But you're right. I mean, the, 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 the whole juxtaposition of dark and light, uh, or to use the expression which was first used among the Lurianic Kabbalists, it became very important for the Hasidim, and I, I've used this word in a previous lecture, Yeridah L'Tzorech Aliyah. That's what we're talking about. First you go down and then in order to come up. In other words, that's the idea, and I illustrated that one in my Hasidic lecture, which I think I thought you heard. Uh, they took the idea and made it into a kind of moral principle without the national drama and all of the stuff that we're talking about here. Uh, but you're right. I mean, uh, essentially... Jews also need to explain the fact that like other nations, they were kicked out of their lands, they were persecuted, they were living uh, as, as a kind of apolitical minority, etc. And their justification was to explain, for, based on the Bible, the notion of Galut exile and redemption. They had to explain that they were living under different conditions and different requirements. They were living in the dark, but ultimately, and here is where the messianic idea plays a critical role, they will be redeemed, right? Uh, we are suffering because of our sins, but ultimately, we are going to come back strong by this, uh, this rebuilding and so on. So you're right. I think uh, the, the Sabbateans and the Hasidim and all the people that use this idea took it from, um, uh, they cast it out of this, this divine drama which had been around for centuries. So that, that's very good. Others, yes. I'm just trying to understand your term enthusiasts. Is that the term you use? Yeah. Um, and who falls into that category? And I'm not sure if you're going to cover this at Bat Yam as to who would we label today as enthusiasts, whether it would be Zionists or whether it would be um, uh, Reconstructionist Jews. Or I'm trying to understand what that means. Is that anybody who who has a different take on Judaism and how to practice it, or right, is right. it... All right, well, I'm glad you asked me to clarify. It, uh, it's, it's actually a word that is used by 18th century historians in general. That there is, uh, there were, for example, the French prophets. There were a whole group of mystical groups, heretical groups within Christianity in this period of time. And what this, using this word does, is to link up the Jewish phenomenon with the Christian phenomenon. But it's basically these kind of 
mystical types who clearly were non-anti-establishment. They were breaking from the Catholic Church. They were breaking from the Protestant Church. Uh, evangelical types who were indeed, uh, you know, hearing the voice of God uh, and were and and clearly were challenging to the establishment. I mentioned the word before melancholia. Uh, Robert Burton, the famous um, kind of doctor psychologist of the 18th century, wrote a two-volume work on melancholia, which he's really speaking about enthusiasm there. In other words, not only the um, church establishment is threatened, but also the medical establishment. So what he does is to interpret these kinds of groups as having illness, mental illness. In other words, he tries to, to defang them by kind of isolating them as kind of mentally ill. Uh, but these groups were around, were part of this 18th century scene, and what I've just done is to link that phenomenon with the Jewish phenomenon of, of Sabbatianism. Does it apply to the modern era? No, I didn't think of it in those terms. Clearly, uh, on some level, of course, when I put Spinoza in, then I'm suggesting even a broader definition of enthusiasm by saying anyone who chooses to believe what he believes and you know, goes against the establishment uh, is an enthusiast. Um, that's true, but I don't want to... Uh, but, but you see, in the modern era, um, the notion of Jews by choice, and here I don't mean just converts, I mean Jews who choose to be in this synagogue versus another synagogue versus the third synagogue and so on, we're all, uh, in that sense, enthusiasts. In other words, uh, there isn't any clear establishment, right? There is an Orthodox community, of course, uh, but there's also a conservative community, and each of them demand or create their own norms and their own. So I, I guess we, we in, in the world of the 18th century, there was clearly a rabbinic establishment that saw itself as the pure Jews versus the impure Jews who were not listening to them, and they could be labeled ill or enthusiastic or what, etc., etc. That world doesn't exist anymore, and therefore I, would, I wouldn't argue that yeah, certainly Reconstructionist Judaism or Zionism or Socialism, things I'm going to talk about uh, in Batyam, um, really fit under this rubric anymore. But it works for the 18th century is all I'm saying. But in the 18th century, when they were labeling people or movements as enthusiasts, how did they re reconcile that with looking then back at ancient times to the prophets and would those prophets, by their definition, because they may have b believed that they heard the voice of God or they saw they were, God, yeah, would they be labeled enthusiasts right, right, right. by their definition? Excellent question. Um, I think the word emerges in the context, it is, it is about power and authority and about control. That's what we're really speaking about here. It is about religious establishments that are concerned about controlling people who speak, uh, you know, in their own language and, and their own uh, virtue and decide upon their own thing. Surely, the history of religion, whether it be Judaism or Christianity or Islam, had its share of enthusiasts long before the 18th century. Uh, those who obviously, oh, every prophet, in other words, we're speaking about, but why, is, I mean, I'll give you an example, why did Judaism argue, the rabbis argue, that you can no longer be a prophet after the prophetic era. They were trying to control or to tame or to somehow channel the, 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 the freedom and enthusiasm of a prophet to say anything he wanted, you know? And why does it say already in Devarim, in, 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 in the book of Deuteronomy, that if a new prophet arises in your day, don't take him seriously, because, you know, uh, in other words, these were already establishment authorities trying to sort of curb and you'll forgive the expression, curb the enthusiasm, right? You know, isn't that program starting up again? Yeah, all right, so uh, I connected to you on some level. All right, yeah, there we go, all right. So in this and other lectures, you've used the term messianism in a greater sense than I was expecting. I wonder if you can give a brief definition of messianism according to your understanding. Okay, I, I actually, um, on Friday night, I used... I quoted from Maimonides' Mishneh uh, Torah, and you know, if a, 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 a person who is from the tribe of Israel and uh, brings about all the gathering of the tribes and brings peace on earth, uh, and Maimonides adds and continues to observe the law, that's critical for him, uh, and, and does all of these conditions, then he will be considered the Messiah. 
So basically, the, the traditional idea of a Messiah, which of course emerges in the biblical period, but actually is formulated uh, in, in, in the Hellenistic time, in the rabbinic time, and so on, um, is an idea of, uh, there are two dimensions there. The, the, the Messiah as a human, first of all, is, is, is a human being, is not God. He could be an agent of God, but he's not God, a human being. That, so that's, that's why Jesus could not be a Messiah in, uh, in Jewish terms. So the Messiah will gather all of the, the tribes who are scattered. In other words, he will eliminate uh, the diaspora. He will eliminate Galut, the exile. Uh, and he will bring about an era of universal peace. And he will restore the temple and the ritual, etc., etc. Those are all the conditions of the Messianic era. But this gives me an opportunity to add one other uh, uh, part of our story. Just, you know, history is all about nuance and about, you know, you just don't... So, Already, even Shalom distinguishes between a Christian Messianism and Jewish Messianism. So what is Christian Messianism? Christian Messianism, or apocalypticism, um, is more spiritual. It's about a heavenly kingdom rather than an earthly kingdom. In other words, the distinction between the earthly Jewish Messianic idea versus the more spiritual idea. Well, Moshe Idel, uh, who was challenging Shalom on all fronts, wrote a work uh, called Messianic Mystics in which he argued that Shalom again was exaggerating, that indeed there were periods of time and Jews and, and Jewish thinkers who formulated the Messiah more in spiritual terms. And the best example he has is a group of Kabbalists, but also Moses Maimonides again, back to this great Jewish thinker. Maimonides essentially talks about the Messianic era in philosophical terms. He, he, he kind of abstraction. He's not really interested in the literal Messiah. He's interested in a kind of philosophical world that will end. That's his messianic era that will come about. So Edel argues that indeed the spiritual definition of Messiah, that is the era, the time, the period, uh, the illumination of the world around reason, are, is really what uh, uh, Maimonides is articulating. Um, in other words, to make the long story short here, um, and this is what I try to emphasize with my students in teaching Jewish history in general, um, when someone says to you, Judaism says this, be wary, uh, because there are a lot of different rabbis, a lot of different eras, a lot of different influences, a lot of different voices within that tradition. Um, and uh, so asking for a definition of the Messiah, when do you mean in the Second Temple period, in the medieval period, among philosophers, among Kabbalists, uh, among followers of Shabbat Tzvi, among the opponents of Shabbat Tzvi, and what do we mean by modern uh, messiahs? Well, that's, that's the, the story in Batyam. I'm asking you to quote Ruderman. <laughs> oh, Ruderman, now, he's not important. Uh, so I, uh, uh, anyway, the messiah is exactly as I defined it. There is an earthly definition of the messiah, but uh, I, can't, I can't put it on one foot, nor will I try. I, I just want to tell you about it. I know the rabbi wants me to end, and I want to end too. Um, but um, i just tell you um, about my most recent experience teaching this stuff. Um, last year, I uh, decided for the first time in 45 years of teaching to teach a freshman seminar, where only freshmen can take the course. And I had six freshmen. Two of them were yeshiva bachers. Um, the rest of them were all uh, from different Spanish-speaking countries, Mexico, Colombia, they're all non-Jews. And I threw them from the first session, Gershon Sholom, and all this very heavy stuff. I mean, really, it was hard stuff to read, and they weren't even Jewish. And I had them, uh, two students, one student had to prepare the reading, the other had to comment on the reading every week. Uh, and they read a hell of a lot, and it was really hard stuff. And we started with Shomam. Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, for a, for a Jew, for anybody. Um, and you know, I think I'm so privileged to be able to teach at a place like University of Pennsylvania to have students like that. And we worked throughout the whole year, and we began with the biblical Messiah, and we ended with talking about uh, recent events in the land of Israel um, and where messianic activity has emerged within our own time. And we actually read several of the writings of Chabad, where the Messiah figure has emerged, you know, the Rebbe is called the Messiah, etc., etc. Uh, it was an amazing educational experience. All I can say about this topic in my very last sentence before I sit down um, is that if, if I prove to you nothing else, 
Uh, I can, and you can see, you know, even though I'm telling a story from the past, that there is relevance and there is meaning even for our own day as we struggle to understand the world, to make sense of it, and to work for a better world, which of course the Mashiach will eventually come. Yes? Yeah, one final question. Do you think that if um, the conversion to Islam was not involved in this whole story, what do you think would have happened in the Jewish world with Shabtatsvi? Because he had an enormous amount of followers. Yeah, uh, well, you know, it, it created a movement called the Donmea, but of course then Frank took it and reversed it and changed it to Christianity. Um, it obviously was the most dramatic aspect of the story, I mean, the idea of a conversion. Um, could it have been different? I, I, would, I would argue that the challenge to rabbinic authority can also be found in other circles. I mean, rational, irrational, and so on. Would it have made a difference? I mean, that's the critical question that historians can't answer. Um, but clearly, that was the most dramatic part of it, and that really raised the issue. I think, you know, uh, to sort of amend, this is Rudiman as opposed to Sholem. Uh, Rudiman, uh, Sholem spoke about Sabbatianism as being the problem of antinomianism. I would argue that what's really going on here, and it's a word that I use in my book quite often, mingle identities. The problem with the rabbis was, it's one thing, and here, here this answers your question, um, it's not so much about breaking the law that's troubling here. It's mixing the religions, it's crossing boundaries, it's creating a kind of Jewish Muslim or Jewish Christian. Neither the church authorities, nor the Muslim authorities, nor the Jewish authorities could handle that. In other words, they wanted clean definitions of what Judaism is. You know, in our own day, we struggle with a definition, what do we do with Jews, Jews for Jesus, etc., etc. It's the same kind of thing. And therefore, the conversion to Islam indeed did precipitate uh, a dramatic response because it meant not only that they were converting, but they were also preserving certain, certain, some of their Jewish elements in this new Islam. And that mix was, you know, lethal. So that answers your question. Anyway, thank you so much.